Hello and welcome to the third season of Tomorrow Comes Today, the thought leadership podcast from St. James's Place. Accompanying me today, as ever, is Rob Gardner, Head of Investment for St. James's Place. But with us for the first time this episode is St. James's Place financial wellbeing expert, Harriet Shepherd. Hello to you both. Hi, Matt. Great to be with you today. Matt, great to be back. And I can't believe it's season three. I know. How quickly has that gone and how many great people have we met? And what a great way to kick off today. We've got three brilliant guests joining. It might be my favourite episode yet. We have Daniel Yergin, author, speaker, historian, economic historian and energy expert, whose new book, The New Map, Energy, Climate and the Clash of Nations, looks at the impact geopolitics is having on the ongoing energy crisis. And it's a very timely look indeed. We've got Lorraine Kwai, and she's a former FBI counterintelligence agent. And she talks to us about the importance of mental toughness in an ever-changing world. And finally, we have Melanie Eusebi, MBE, a business strategist, author, and co-founder of the Black Business Awards. And she talks to us about her new book, Financial Wellness and How to Find It, and the ethos in that book that I suppose we should be treating our financial well-being just as we do our kind of holistic mental and physical well-being. Some great guests today, Matt. Well, absolutely there are. Are there there any that you're particularly excited to be talking about? Well, I'd say Lorraine Kwai is really interesting, especially in her mental toughness approach. But also she's got a quiz online, this mental toughness quiz, which I've taken for myself and I'm fascinated to hear her insights as well as comparing them to my output. And then Mel Eusebi, her initiative as well, the Money Moves Initiative, it encourages open conversation about things that we aren't great at talking about. And money is one of those that's really important to us as well. So I'm excited to dive deeper into that. I could not even consider taking a mental toughness quiz before about noon. What about you, Rob? Well, I have to say, I I can't wait to hear Dan Jurgen. As a geographer, someone who loves maps, I think his new book is, as you say, timely. But to be honest, we've got three great guests. Absolutely. Well, let's get started with the first one. I spoke to Daniel Jurgen about a month ago when the current conflict in in Ukraine was just starting to kick off. And as you'll hear, the things we, we talked about ended up being extremely timely. One of the fascinating things about this book, The New Map, Energy, Climate and the Clash of Nations, I was almost reading it and thinking how you were creating a new Mercator projection in a way, like a new way of looking at how important things were, in which some countries sort of gain prominence and other countries kind of start to dwindle. Do you see the map being fundamentally redrawn by the questions facing us on energy? Yes, I do. By the questions facing us on both energy and geopolitics, because it really struck me is that we have this new terrain that's very different than even five or six years ago. It's around climate and energy, but it's also around geopolitics. It's around a very changed relationship with China. It's the question, are we headed into a new Cold War? So really with the new map, what I was trying to do is is map this new terrain and uh, demonstrate and raise the questions about where we're going. And it, as you say, it does. it is a different frame of reference than it was five years ago. Is part of what we're failing on the fact that we do think in categories where we'll think this is a Germany story, that's a South China Morning Post story, and could we but connect the dots, as you have, I think, very eruditely in the in the book? Yeah, well, what struck me, I mean, you've, you pointed to one thing. I mean, I think people don't really understand the nature of the relationship between Russia and China today. I mean, there's still people here in Washington who say maybe we can separate Russia from China. No way. You know, there are 
number of st stories in there. One I describe, I was at what's called the St. Petersburg Economic Forum a couple of years ago when we all were able still to meet. And Vladimir Putin's favorite guest that meeting was Xi Jinping, the president of China. And Putin begins by apologizing, saying, I kept you up so late till four o'clock your time in the morning talking. And Xi Jinping said, we never have enough time to talk. And you know what they talk about, you know, among other things is their common opposition to what they see as an international order that they oppose. And China right now is saying, we want to become the leader of the international order of globalization. And they're so closely aligned. And the story, as sanctions were being put on Nord Stream 2, that pipeline you talk about from Russia to Germany, right around the same time, there was this ceremony that I describe in the book where Putin was in Sochi and uh, Xi Jinping was in Beijing and they had this ceremony where they started the flow of gas on this power of Siberia pipeline, which is a symbolic as well as a very practical way of China and Russia being tied together. If we are heading towards a new period of entente and a new period of face-offs and of strategic rivalry, does this increased connectivity, is that under threat? We seem to be going through a period of deglobalization generally. Can you see the, anything like a kind of a, a Berlin Wall or, a, or anything like the very, very sharp divisions recurring? Well, I think that uh, we see some of that already. And that's the paradox of this high degree of integration. But there's a technology struggle, war going on, a battle over quantum computing. There's a military competition. You know, one of the shocks of the Cold War was Sputnik when the Soviets put up a satellite before the United States. And a couple of months ago, the chairman of the U.S. Joint Chiefs of Staff described this hypersonic missile test of China. He called it a near Sputnik moment. I mean, uh, you know, I sort of jerked when I heard that. And I have a section in the book called The Four Ghosts Who Haunt the South China Sea. And I really wrote that part of it as basically as a warning. And some of the parallels are more like the period before the First World War, when you had Germany and Britain so integrated economically, and yet ended up in this war that nobody expected on a scale and a cost that nobody anticipated. The other wild card would seem to be around climate and the fact that that's going to cause or seems set to cause populational shifts. I mean, I know one of the anxieties that China has is the potential for flooding on the other side of the Himalayas and population movements and so on. Countries, apart from the Netherlands, with all of those huge dikes that they built, they don't tend to be very well prepared for that sort of thing at all. Do you think it's a function of the four-year political cycle in a way? Well, I think there's a pretty strong global consensus. I mean, it was quite remarkable uh, what actually happened in Paris in 2015 with all those nations signing on. Uh, obviously, any specific event, I mean, we've, you know, the world has been, you know, warming for many decades now. Uh, and now the sense is it, you know, is it, is it speeding up and what to do about it? But the other side about it is that we are still looking at a world in which uh, demand is continuing to go up for conventional energy. And I think to me, it was very striking that at the same time as you had the Glasgow conference and you had uh, electric cars taking people around, but that were being po powered with diesel generators, that you had an energy crisis that was causing the ration of electricity in China. So one of the questions that's in my mind is even as you're moving to address climate and the great growth of renewables is are we seeing preemptive underinvestment 
in conventional energy, which will create a backlash. And the second thing that I see is a north-south divide between developed and developing countries, because developing countries are saying, yes, we've got to deal with climate. We also have to deal with poverty and economic growth. So it's important that there be a better dialogue between developed and developing countries to address these climate things that listen to what the developing countries are saying about their other existential questions. You've said the degree to which the world depends on oil and gas is often not understood, given that inevitably there will ultimately be a transition to renewables. How does this affect global finance markets and investors? Do you think it will be a smooth transition or do you see that it's a bumpy road? I think it's a uh, more likely a bumpy road. I think, I mean, a big question is this crisis that we've just seen in Europe and China, is it a one-off or is it going to be a repeated pattern? And I think a lot will depend upon government policies, but a lot will depend upon investment because, you know, the world today, solar, renewable, great. I mean, there's a solar revolution. Costs have come down 90%. It's it's incredible what's happening. But this world economy still is about 80% hydrocarbons. And I think it was easy for investors to be ESG, environment, social governance, when oil prices are low. But when oil prices are high and you're looking at returns, investors will kind of look differently. And I think we see an emphasis by both the large oil companies and the independents, the shale producers, that you've got to return money to uh, investors. So that becomes a decision for investors to make the trade-offs and the argument divestment is really kind of off the point. And who's increasing their capacity to produce oil? Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, because they see a deficit coming elsewhere. We've talked a little bit about the idea of transition. And I've heard that renewables will democratize energy, that they will stop a few suppliers like the United Arab Emirates, Saudi Arabia, Russia, the US, China from effectively throttling the global supply of energy. I think that's true. You know, it does mean it, it decentralizes it. It decentralizes the system. I, one of the subjects I'm very interested in is what does the energy transition do in terms of new demand? Because the sun and the wind may be free, but a vast amount of materials have to go into these. And I talk about in, in the new map, I came up with this idea that we move from what the headline writers like to call big oil to big shovels because it's going to involve so much more mining. And where's that going to be? And so, you know, the world becomes much more dependent upon Chile, where you have a 35-year-old president who said that copper has been the source of the impoverishment of the Chilean people, rather than uh, giving them a you know higher standard of living in Latin America. And there's a whole new geopolitics that gets involved here, because who produces 80% of the world's solar panels? China. Who dominates the new supply chains of the minerals for uh, net zero carbon? China. We at IHS Market are undertaking a big study to say, what does energy transition actually mean for the demand for copper? What does it really mean? And coming to the conclusion that the needs are much more, but it takes 16 years to open a new mine. So where are these resources going to come from? And that's another area in answer to your point you raised earlier about whether this is going to be smooth or not. I think that question of these new supply chains is going to be another reason that things may not be as smooth as some people's scenarios suggest. So listening back to that now with Dan talking about the return of the Cold War and and looking at the way in which geopolitics could be reshaping our world, 
it's difficult, isn't it, not to think of the pictures coming out of Ukraine right now and about how, how the world is unstitching itself in a way commercially. Harriet, I'll start with you if I could. I mean, first of all, what a fascinating conversation with Dan. But second, I wondered if you if there were any themes in there that you sort of had that moment like me where you were like, yes, absolutely. It's playing out just just like he kind of predicted. I think the biggest theme that comes out of that is uncertainty. And he calls it out a couple of times. And it's uncertainty of events, particularly at the moment on a global level. But we mustn't forget that actually people looking at this also have events going on in their own lives as well. So you see the two playing out together and you feel this overwhelming sense of uncertainty, of concern for people that you don't even know across across borders as well. And this instant news, this instant update on events, social media presenting opinions is empowering and it's great because it, it causes people to get behind something but it's also it does affect people's well-being and it does affect people's mindset and it increases that uncertainty it decreases their confidence more instantly than we've seen before so this this element of worry and people predicting and whether those predictions are founded or unfounded this kind of noise in the market is really really difficult robert i know this is this is fundamentally one of the parts of your job isn't it? To help people to focus on these North Stars, I suppose, and, and to ignore the white noise or to filter it out. What did you find in Dan's, did you find any hope in it for a start? Yeah, look, I, I think on one level, uncertainty has always been around us. And I, I mean, he talks about a new map and a new terrain. But I think, you know, over the last 120 years, we had Pax Britannia, we had World War II, we had Pax Americana, we had globalisation. And we're just in a new era. So one of my favourite books, actually, is a book called Prisoners of Geography by Tim Marshall, that kind of plays on a similar theme. And he talks about the Mercator projection. And he says, on the Mercator projection, Greenland appears the same size as of Africa. And yet Africa is 14 times bigger than Greenland. You could throw in North America, Great Britain. So I think one of my observations is a few weeks ago, people didn't even know where Ukraine was on the map. So people are quite unaware about how things are connected. And I think what he is highlighted is just how interconnected the world is. And so what people don't realize is that Russia and Ukraine is the breadbasket of certainly Europe, but if not the world. I think one in eight calories traded globally come from Ukraine. And so I suppose right now, people are understandably rightly focused on the war, the human, humanitarian impact. But at the same time, I think there is also, well, what what is the impact of this? And those impacts will be caused by the response, sanctions. But this will trigger is triggering inflation, will trigger food crisis. It will certainly trigger a food crisis in Africa. And we know what happened last time there was a food crisis in Africa, there was social unrest. So I suppose it's all quite discombobulating. It's quite uncontaining. And it just reminds me back to two years ago when we first started doing these and the onset of COVID. And I think we talked about this concept called VUCA, volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. And we always have and always will live in a VUCA world. And I think, you know, we need to learn how to respond to these situations. The thing that came out of Dan's interview that was really interesting is the power that an investor has. And when we think about an investor, we're not just talking about large scale investments, we're talking about you or me, in the sense of this notion of values and what you care about coming through and where you put your money. So actually, we had, you know, the rise in presence of climate change, the conversation gathering momentum, a lot more people are considering how they're investing responsibly. And that agenda is 
escalated. And I think we're seeing the same thing with things like the war in Ukraine. This element of global companies coming out and saying, you know, we're taking our stores or our our funds out of Russia and we're we're making a stand on XYZ. And all of that is causing a movement and clients are then interested in that element of it, you know, how exposed am I or where is it? And I've heard people say, yeah, petrol prices are going to go up to two pounds, but if that's the price I've got to pay, then I'll happily do it. And that attitude, I think, comes out of situations like this that are so out of our hands on a day-to-day level that you start to do what you can. So on that, it's a good time to go into our next interviewee, our next guest on the show. Lorraine Kwai talked to me about knowing your true north and about having, a, a, I suppose, a resilient outlook on what it is that you want to achieve and what it is that you don't. So let's go to her now. I went back to get my master's at Arizona State University. And when I was there, the FBI was interviewing uh, students. And I thought, well, what the heck? I have nothing to lose. I hate my job. I'm looking for something different. And so I I went in for an interview and they hired me almost immediately. And I was sort of unprepared for that, really. And I got into the academy and I mean, you know, everybody stood up on the first day to talk about you know, their background. And I mean, there was a guy over here from the armed forces that had been in Northern Africa and another one over here that had survived a shootout in New Jersey with, it was a trooper. And then I stood up and I said, well, I'm a buyer at a fancy department store. And they all just sort of looked at the fluff ball that had accidentally gotten into the FBI. And I really came close to being washed out of the academy. And I I had to really dig deep at that point. Is this what I really wanted? And was it worth the pain? And interestingly enough, after I'd gotten into the Bureau, I realized that FBI internally stands for fidelity, bravery, and integrity. Those were values I could relate to. Moving into the present now, it feels like we're at this moment in the culture, I suppose, whether it's kind of fake news or conspiracy or people not knowing which direction. The signal to noise ratio is really unfavorable for people. You know, everybody's being told like, with you know, go over there and invest in Bitcoin. No, go over there and do that. And believe this. No, believe that. I found reading your work, actually, that this idea of knowing who you are and knowing what you're supposed to be doing, if you like, on the planet is is a very good guide through all those distracting voices. Is that something that you you baked in as part of the plan for your for your books and your your later career? I spent the first half of my life, the 24 years, working counterintelligence and espionage cases. And I loved what I was doing. It was such a frantic lifestyle, so packed full of one crisis versus another versus the, 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 the intense stress that comes with more sophisticated, com- complicated investigations, that I didn't really take the time to dig deep. I knew that the values were important to me, but I didn't put the time in to discover why or to what depth until I retired. And I'd given myself permission to really go go look at myself. And so I had an opportunity at that time to really reflect on what I did want to do. And I was able to excavate the significance of my own stories and my own experiences. And I have a lot of stories just because that's how my life unfolded. But so do you. And so does every listener. We all have 
significant stories and experiences that shaped and formed the people that we are today. And our job is to excavate that meaning. Maybe we know in the back of our mind that we really would rather be doing something else, or maybe we know that we love what we're doing and we want to continue. But the thing is, when we hit a tough time like now with COVID, with economic upheaval, with all that's going on in the world right now, there's a lot of adversity. There are obstacles popping up all the time, roadblocks. And the thing is, if we don't have the grit and the mental toughness to keep plowing through, then we're going to just sort of capitulate or fold because we really don't know which which way to go or what we want in life. But I mean, um, but, but the thing of it is, if you don't have any direction in life, it's usually because you, they don't know what their values are. People don't know what their value was, uh, values are, or they just have crappy values, crappy ones. And we're surrounded by super crappy values all around. And they're very noisy. They get our attention. I wonder whether there's a prescription almost in what you're saying about having this grit and about having clarity of purpose and clarity of direction that could make us all not just stronger, but happier. Because we are not being, we're not having, if you like, the, these distractions whispering in our ears and, take, and telling us how things could be better. Have you found that since you focused on this in your, as it were, in yourself, that you too have become, as it were, more grounded and more centered? I absolutely did, Matt. And that's why I wrote my book, To Be Truthful. And it's not that I have this great fount of knowledge, uh, or people should believe this because this is what Lorraine Kwai uh, says. But I learned early in the FBI that while theories are nice, evidence is better. So what I did is I, I just did a nosedive into neuroscience and social psychology, and I married them up in trying to explain and understand some of my own experiences. And you mentioned happiness. I have a problem with this pursuit, this relentless pursuit of happiness that we're absolutely consumed with right now. We have to be happy all the time. We have to be entertained all the time. And it's, it's just very, it's, it's, it's all about, you know, what can the world give to me? That's, that's passion really. But purpose is different. Purpose is what can I give to the world? And I think people today are a little confused about this because the media all around us never talks really that much about purpose because we're, we're very hedonistic. What can the world give to me? Uh, what's in it for me? You know, I need to be passionate about my job. And if it doesn't meet my expectations, I'll move on to something else. And th that's just not real life. And it's fine. I think maybe people can sort of use this as a band-aid through some of their life. But when times get tough, it doesn't work. If we don't have an idea what to do with our life, it's a struggle. It's a continual struggle. And so I really encourage people to think about something beside yourself. The purpose is when you pursue something outside yourself rather than continually pursue something that gives you pleasure. Now, happiness is 
amazing. I am happy when I have a, a ice cream cone or when I'm with my little dog. And they're wonderful, but they're fleeting. Happiness is a wonderful fleeting emotion. It's not where we should expect to stay all the time. I mean, we've talked about the role of media and the endless timeline and claims on our attention that we need to be worried about this or we need to think about that or we need to do this. Do you think that there's a, there's a danger that we all... I suppose, enter an echo chamber of self-reinforcement where I will hear more about the things that are already putting me way off centre. How can we go about, I suppose, cleansing ourselves of all of these false indicators of where we truly are to ourselves? I'm a firm belief that we have to explore. We need to step out of our rut and look at things that are different to understand why we react or don't react to new stimuli or new information or new circumstances. I follow Plato. I think he said this, friends are like dirt. They either help you thrive or they'll help you wither. And so I, I like the idea of surrounding myself with people who are different than myself, who may be smarter than myself, certainly, uh, or just have different experiences because it will help me understand uh, the, the narrative that's being driven at us by popular culture. And I'm as affected by popular culture as anyone. I mean, whether it's the car I drive or, you know, the books I read or, or whatever, but it's awareness. It's important to stop and think about where this opinion came from or where this generalization came from. It feels talking to you. I mean, the, there's a sense of deep engagement with other people and how interesting people are. Did you find that handy in the FBI? That must have come in tremendously useful when you were, for example, cultivating informants and so on. Absolutely. I'm a curious person, but I'm also a person who likes adventure. And I and I almost classify, classify myself more as an adventure-seeking person because um, I could stay in my own little world, my own little rut. And, uh, and, and as they say, the only difference between a rut and a coffin are the dimensions. And I have friends who are in the same place, both mentally, spiritually, and physically. They were, you know, 20, 30 years ago. I just say that, you know, if you believe the same thing at 40 that you did at 20, you just wasted 20 years of your life. Because the whole idea is to expand this wonderful thing called the brain, which is why my philosophy, my, my book, my writing talks about mindsets. You know, you change the mindset, you change the behavior, you change the outcome. Talking to Lorraine Air was really interesting to hear, I suppose, her more personal view on what we were just discussing regarding, you know, knowing the true north and the, the real story underneath all the noise. It felt, felt like there's a kind of a resilience lesson in there for where we feel we should be heading and our personal purpose. So here's a question. Do either of you have a formulated personal purpose like that? I, I know one of the things that you do is obviously help clients to identify their North Stars and what's most important to them. But do you know anything about yourself that goes quite that deep? Big question. Deep question. I think Huge question. <laughs> for me, a lot of my purpose is at the moment, my present purpose is 
kind of learning, being better than the day before, that kind of thing. When I look longer term, I find it quite hard to look longer term, admittedly. And I think a lot of people listening and a lot of our clients are on a similar boat. When people say, you know, what are your long term goals? What they're meaning is retirement and things like that. For me, I always envisage my long term goal is a family or my children going to school and stuff. But actually, that's not as long term as I make out in my own head. And I think that's the shift that we need to help people to take. It links a lot to the concept of present bias, that notion of prioritizing your spending today, prioritizing the needs of today versus saving for yourself in the future. There was this researcher, Hirschfield and his team who did a paper in 2009 that looked at your current you, your future you, and then compared it to how you would view a current other. And he kind of explained it perfectly. You can connect to your current you. Of course you can. You can spend money on yourself quite happily. When you're trying to connect with your future you, you really can't do it. And what he found was that actually you viewed the current needs of another person on the same level as the future needs of yourself. And he took it kind of one step further and had a look at how you could break that, what the steps would be to combat this present bias. And when you're thinking of young people and saving for retirement, the way he sort of tested convincing people was putting them through an aging profile so that then he put it into virtual reality. And once you engaged with that future you and you could see them as a real person, people saved 30% more for their future self. And that's all just due to the fact that it's so far away. And so, you know, I put myself through an aging app to see what it looked like. And quite frankly, I was terrified. But that kind of thing, it helps you to to go on that journey and start thinking about it. That's interesting. That idea of cultivating empathy, I suppose, for your own future choices. That's You say that I'm deep. That's quite <laughs> what, what about you, Rob? Do you have anything like a formulated set of stars to guide you or kind of personal constitution, I suppose? Yeah, I suppose I probably started when I became a dad and someone said to me, you only have a thousand weekends with your children, spend them wisely. A book that I love is a book by Professor Steve Peters. It's called The Chimp Paradox, but one of the exercises is called The Stone of Life. And it's this exercise that you know, when you die, what, what would you want people to say about you? Which is, I think, what Leroy is talking about, which is what's the story that you would want people to say. So look, I, I have my stone of life. I've done all the exercises in the book, but I think doing that work is is powerful and it makes you realize where you want to spend time and, and how to focus on the moments that matter. And just to bring that to life, last year, my wife used a photo app and took all the photos from last year and and put it into one of those nice albums. And we were looking at it and I was looking back and going, oh, that was, you know, and bear in mind that, you know, last year was a tough year for everyone. But I forgot we did that. I forgot we did that. So this year, we went back through last year and say, what were all the moments that really mattered, the great moments? And how do we intentionally create more moments like that this year? And to go one step further, I'm, I, I once a year sit down and do my Igikai map, which is this kind of Japanese concept called reason for being. And it's kind of, this idea of what you're good at, what you get paid for, what the world needs, uh, and what you care about. And think of those as like petals on a flower or overlapping circles in a Venn diagram. And the closer you can get to 
to where those things all overlap, the sort of happier or or, or more purpose you will, will have. And you know, for me, that is financial well-being in a world worth living in. Everything I do, either at SJP but outside of work, you know, I've written a book, I've written a children's book, I, I've started a charity for financial education. I'm passionate about how do you solve climate change and biodiversity loss is all centered around those things. But there's a whole lot of other stuff that I don't do because they're not my ikikai. Rob, very fortuitously, you've given me the perfect link to our final guest. It's Mel Eusebi. She's written a book, Financial Wellness and How to Find It. And that book takes money and kind of repositions it to make it an intrinsic part of our lives in need of a health check and and continual sort of low-level tending, just like we do with mental health and physical well-being. And kind of through that, she wants to help people live a life that's more connected, I suppose, to their future selves and more full of financial self-care. I have an anxious avoidant relationship with finance. I'm really ready for this because it feels like a recasting of the classic, if you like, the the Peston thing of should we all be saving more for our pensions? Yes, we should. And everybody runs and hides to something a little bit more part of our holistic selves and part of our general, I suppose, duty of self-care. Is that what you set out to do? Yes, that is exactly what I set out to do. That the same way that we would do a health audit or a health check and that we would look at our blood levels, we would look at our cholesterol levels in our blood, we'd look at our, not just our weight in isolation, we wouldn't just look at the numbers, but we would just look at all of the figures, how they come together. Then that's exactly what I envision financial wellness to be because, and and we're all on different paths and, and parts of our journey as well. So yes, it is that holistic How do you engage with your money and how do you engage with the economy? There are a lot of different forms, just like with health, aren't there? A lot of different reasons that people, whether they kind of hide behind the idea of, oh, well, it's all the same anyway, so there's no point doing anything or control seekers. Do you see those behaviours as part of a wider national or or global spirit? I mean, in times of trouble, do people bury their heads in the sand? In times when people are multitasking and portfolio working, do we find more people putting their own housekeeping on the back burner? In times of national crises or, or international crises, then we have several different reactions. And your avoided reaction, as you just mentioned, that's just one reaction. There are some people who attack the block. You know, they say, okay, well, you know what? This is what it is. And they want to put their hands around the problem and they say, let's go and go for it. And there are some people who reach out to others and, you know, who definitely want to talk about it, who want to engage in the feelings behind it as well. So everyone has a different reaction to, to crises. However, there is a, a problem with the global narrative or global discourse around money and the economy where, you know, sometimes people have been separated from it because they're all, it almost commands for this high level of expertise. There's an accountancy kind of industry. There's also, you know, there's a wealth management industry as well where it doesn't necessarily encourage people to kind of just get involved in the, wait a minute, you're trading your precious time that you'll never get back for money. What are you doing with that? What are you doing with your money? That's it. (laughs) So it's nice and simple rather than it being, ah, 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 I have to know about every single financial instrument and how to invest and optimize. That's not what we're talking about here. That's fantastic if you want to do that, but that's not what we're talking about here at all. It's a very different narrative. It's just... Every day you wake up and somehow there's an exchange going on for your money and your time. There's an exchange. What happens after that? I mean, there's something, isn't there, about Britishness as well, where we are 
I mean, I can even feel thinking about it. This little tiny internal flinch talking about money. I've also read some research that suggests British parents are more comfortable talking about the birds and the bees, as it were, than talking about their own financial affairs to their children. Most definitely. It's sad. It's so shocking that, yes, you, we would rather speak about the birds and the bees. Particularly I, when, I speak to, uh, when I speak to women, about women, for women, we can talk about the, our vaginas. We can talk about, like, nationally, on television shows. And, but, and when it comes to money, then there is this reticence to speak about the ins and outs of our, our money. And quite frankly, there are some large organizations, large institutions that can profit off of that. It, because not talking about it does enable shame and not talking about it also does enable inequality as well. Um, there are some studies that say that women who ask for more or who even ask what the salary is, they're penalized at job interviews, that they're penalized and, and then people see them as, as being too forward or too aggressive. And that's shocking to me. Right. And this, this is quite a live conversation now, isn't it? In the wake of we're hearing all these things about the great resignation and about how, you know, employers are going to get back to the office or you might find. And it feels like there's a, it's actually, especially with Generation Z, that they're getting much better at saying, well, hang on a minute. You need to court me as well as me courting you. Do you think there is hope in this redrawing, I suppose, of the battle lines between labour provider and, and labour consumer, if you like? There is. There definitely is a redrawing. And you're right. It, it does seem to be much more of an open conversation at the generations that are coming after me that they're saying, OK, well, how much am I getting for this? And is this worth it? Um, do I really need to work five days a week, nine to five in order for me to achieve the same things? And so I love that this this questioning is going on because it is a sense that it's a valuing of self, of contribution a valuing of input that they're kind of engaging in. So that's lovely. And we're seeing that particularly, yes, after the pandemic, you're seeing this great resignation, you're seeing this changing of jobs, which is absolutely lovely to see because a lot of people, particularly at the, um, the higher ends of income generation, are saying, wait a minute, do I really need to do all of this to live the way that I want? You know, like when I did that, I didn't see my family. I didn't see my friends. I didn't have the special moments that I wanted to. I didn't invest in the business that I wanted. I didn't start the business. I didn't have the education that I wanted, all kinds of things. And so now we're seeing that people are investing in, in different ways, investing their time in different ways. They're empowered to, rather than that um, nine to five grudge. So I'm, I'm really, I, I can't wait to see this next year or two years. I want to see what the long tail of it will be. A lot of your book uh, left me smiling and feeling like I can do this. But there's also some parts of the book that left me kind of like open mouthed with the connections that you made, which do make sense. And one of them was talking about this passage, which is bound to become famous, where you go, actually, be more like the Kardashians. And you, you sort of talk about how, how Kim Kardashian is leveraging all the bits of what she can turn into her brand. It feels like a lesson that's very relatable especially for people starting out in their careers, where that idea of establishing who I am, what I can leverage in order to make money, but also what I can leverage in order to get credibility in certain areas or what have you. Do you see that as part of the millennial and Gen Z playbook? Yeah, most definitely. In order to kind of acquire true wealth, then you have to move past selling your time for money. 
you're and, and what that means is that you're making money while you sleep. And that's what I was saying that Kim Kardashian makes money while she sleeps. That and I'm not saying it necessarily means that you have to launch a brand of perfume in the drugstores today, but it could very well be that that's your property. Your property makes money while you're asleep. It's investing. You make money while you sleep and it's your money making money. So it's one thing to take care of how you make money, how you change your time for money. But there's another step that you have to look at right afterwards that says, how's my money making money? So how are you generating a profit in your life if you're treating yourself as an organization? And how are you reinvesting that profit so that profit makes you money so she can now go to sleep knowing that she's still making money. She doesn't have to trade one hour of her time for one hour of wages. For anyone listening at home, we had a very lively discussion uh, just before we recorded this about Kim Kardashian and about that comparison. It, it actually reminded me there was a there was a, a musician from Texas that I interviewed once called Kinky Friedman, and he used to be in a, a, a very famous rock band. He started writing very successful crime novels like Carl Hyacin type things. And he said, well, the decision was easy. I realized that as a musician, I had a lifestyle that required my presence. What I wanted to, was a lifestyle that didn't require my presence. That's what we're talking about, I guess, isn't it? When we're talking about this new deal with working and, and turning up five days a week and doing the nine to five, is is there a way to leverage our talents and our investments and our kind of what we are and what we have in such a way that it doesn't wring us quite as dry? For Harriet, because we were talking about the, the generational shift. I mean, is that a crossroads, I suppose, that you've seen happening with people that you've talked to? Absolutely. I think there is a generational thing, but I think there is also a personality thing a, a each individual may feel slightly differently so you have parents who are going this works way better for me now you know post pandemic I can now have a balance that allows me to see my children more to drop them off at school to pick them up to be more involved in their life I mean that's my experience for sure that's how it's worked for me is that I cannot imagine going back to the world before it's not that I'm happy the pandemic happened but it's caused so many things to be on the table now hasn't it it really has. But I think in terms of the generational shift, you're right, there's far more opportunity in that sense. But I think the job market has changed for every generation completely. And that's what we're seeing now. We're seeing social media presenting a new job that, and my dad was saying, he was having a chat the other day with my stepsister who, you know, knows a lot about influencers, she wants to go into, into digital marketing. And dad was going, oh, I just don't get it. You know, I, I, I don't understand it. Talk to me about it. What is it about these these influences? And she explained it and he's going, I just didn't understand there was the breadth of the impact that they have, the fact that brands now need this, this angle on their marketing. And because he's not really into social media and, and, and that's a different angle, but it's a, it's a shift in how we operate, what we need, and therefore new roles that have come about. And People like Kim Kardashian, I mean, I personally don't know much about it. I stay off social media and my friends say that I've got a three to five working day response rate. But there's a lot of movement behind what she's doing that's really powerful and really impressive and the business that her and her family are creating and this movement. And I think we need to leverage more from influencers, particularly around financial well-being as well. This sense of pushing out the right message to those audiences, making sure that they can cut through what's right and what's fake news and, you know, 
Bitcoin and crypto, you miraculously hear a lot about the ones who've done really, really well off it. And quiet and under the surface are a lot of people who have lost a lot of money because of it. And that that kind of weighting of messaging that's coming through can be quite damaging to people's financial well-being, to their amount of money that they've got and to their investment plans. Rob, you know, we were talking a little bit, I was talking with Mel about the idea that people are less comfortable talking about their true experience of these things. I mean, just just as you were saying, Harry, you know, you'll hear a lot about, you'll only hear about when people have done well, you won't hear about when people have done badly. The same with, you know, parents, you know, lots of parents are uncomfortable even explaining what it means to their young child that they've got a mortgage. I wonder if you see, and especially for, for you, Rob, I guess this one, this sense that one of the things you can do for people and, and, and St. James's Place generally with the, the, the kind of the emphasis on the value of, of human to human connection and advice and so on, is this detoxification and the, the, the taking out of the negative charge around financial decision making. Exactly. I'm facilitating conversations about money are, are key and money's a very taboo subject, especially in the UK. I think mortgages is probably about the only financial product people talk about. People like talking about their homes and how to buy it. But pension, saving, debts is it, it's, it's something that, that people feel uncomfortable about. It's not a surprise because we don't teach children about money in the UK. We don't talk about it. And yet we're all responsible for our own lives. You know, and you know, let's say we've got 80 to 100 years to live, there's a lot of financial decisions we need to make along the way. Chances are you may end up sort of meeting someone, cohabiting, starting a family, and then you've got two people trying to make decisions about money. And quite often you can get together with a partner who may have different values around money. Lots of people who are married who don't have joint bank accounts or who don't know what each other has in their pension or even who has a pension or, or not. So these are important conversations. The reality is Mel's right. Whether we like it or not, money is part of our overall well-being. 50% of all mental health issues are to do with owing money or indebtedness. Money is typically one of the top three causes of divorce. The flip side is couples are successful at talking about money will compound their wealth 77% faster than someone who lives on their own. So the upside is huge and the downside is massive. Having healthy, open conversations about money can make a big, big difference to your future individual self and your future collective self if you're in a relationship or have a family. And that's exactly what SJP does. There's a program of financial education in schools that's run through SJP. And when we're going out and doing these sessions, we find a lot of the teachers who are sat in there for because it's their class and you know they have to be there. And they turn around at the end and go, either I didn't know that, I can't believe I didn't know that, or you know I wish I'd have had this when I was at school. And so we do currently have this low sense of financial well-being and literacy and understanding across the UK at all levels. Hopefully, if we can support adults, but also put that learning into schools and build up the next generation, they'll be at a much better level when they are adults themselves. But we have to get to that somehow. So it's yeah a cross-board conversation, I think. And I really like Melanie's Money Moves initiative where she's actively getting people to open up and talk about it and those kind of initiatives are really really important to start that conversation and to allow people a safe space to have that conversation and to say I don't know anything where do I start that's as much of a conversation as having a specific question 
And on that note, what a wonderful conversation we've all had today. I love how we've explored the idea that understanding our own mindsets and and amending our own small behaviours can change big outcomes in almost any arena. Thank you to Daniel Jurgen, to Larey Kwai and to Melanie Eusebi, our guests for this episode, and also to Harriet Shepherd and Rob Gardner from St. James's Place. We'll see you next time. You've been listening to Tomorrow Comes Today, the thought leadership podcast from St. James's Place. To learn more about the series, go to sjp.co.uk slash tctpodcast. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.